So we're going to be thinking about four subjects in relation to the Lord Jesus. And these four subjects are not going to be particularly easy. Uh, we don't like to do that at Rock and Foil. We're here to study. We're here to dig into Scripture. We're here to let God speak to us through his word. So we want to take that opportunity that we have here at Oak and Foil to really get into the scriptures to seek to learn and to test perhaps some of the assumptions that we may have about scripture. Let's test these things and see if they are true. So we want to think about the Lord Jesus and tonight we're going to be thinking about the deity of the Lord Jesus and asking a simple question. And the question is, does the Bible teach that Jesus is God? Does the Bible teach that Jesus is God? We want to think uh, tomorrow about three subjects, and the subjects tomorrow will be the impeccability of the Lord Jesus, the immutability of the Lord Jesus, and the empathy of the Lord Jesus. And we'll talk about the meanings of those words and the implications of them in relation to the Lord Jesus. And all of these subjects we're going to see are not just isolated random subjects, but they all build one on top of the other. And we do trust, my prayer is that at the end of this weekend, our knowledge of the Lord Jesus will be greater, our appreciation of him will be greater, and that will have a positive impact in our lives and the practical issues that we face. We're going to see that the teaching of these things in Scripture is not randomly placed, but placed within a context so that that truth will have an impact in the practical issues that the Scriptures teach within the context of these things. So let's just start then uh, with our studies by turning to 2 John and verse number 9. 2 John, please, and verse number 9. What I want to do is to initiate, I suppose the word is justified, but initially establish the necessity of what we're doing here in relation to the Lord Jesus. So 2 John uh, verse 9 says this, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds. Then over to 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 3. First John chapter 4 and verse number 3. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. So John is writing and he's establishing the importance of our understanding of the doctrine of Christ. The biblical teaching about the person of Christ and the teachings of Christ. These are absolutely fundamental to us as Christians. And not just fundamental, but they're under attack. They always have been under attack. And they're under attack today. And they're under vicious attack. And these great truths that we're going to discover 
have such an importance for us as Christians that Satan seeks to remove them or undermine them or dilute them. And in order to undermine our faith and our appreciation of our Saviour. Now, I'm going to give you three words. Just think about these three words, okay? And if you like grammar or if you like the English language, you try and work this out. The three words are assume, presume, or suppose. Now, like most synonyms in the English language, there's a subtlety of meaning between these three words. I'll say them again. The words assume, presume, or suppose. Now, these three words give a good description of our average understanding of Christ. Assume, presume, or suppose. Now, the word assumption or assume, that is something that's taken for granted, usually as part of an argument. So an assumption is something that you take for granted. Presumption is like an assumption, but slightly different. It has the added connotation of certainty. So if you've got the word assume in the middle, on one side of that, on the side of certainty, is the word presume. So an assumption becomes a presumption when you are certain about it. A supposition is on the other side. So if you've got the word assume in the middle, on the side of certainty, you've got the word presume. On the side of uncertainty, you have this word suppose, a supposition. That is used when there is doubt in your mind about this assumption. Now, in that sense, think of the word assume as being relatively neutral. Think of the word presume and think of the word suppose as being in either sides of that neutral word and roughly opposite connotations. Assume, presume, or suppose. Now, these three words could be used of our understanding of the Lord Jesus as Christians. Test it. Is what you believe about Jesus Christ assumed? Is it a presumption or is it a supposition? Because it is remarkable that the singular most important relationship of our life as a Christian could be based, on the most part, on assumptions. For example, if I was to ask you to answer the question, or you were to ask me to answer the question, is Jesus God, how would you answer it? How would you answer that question? Would you answer it on the basis of assumptions? Would that assumption have moved into a presumption because you're certain about it? Or if there's a sphere of doubt about it, would you be in the sphere of a supposition, you suppose? Or would you be able to turn to the Bible and to demonstrate from the Bible to show your understanding is based upon God's word that Jesus is God? Now just roll that out into other areas of your Christian experience and of your knowledge of the Lord Jesus and of God himself because 
There is a flow. For example, there are times when we make assumptions about things and over time they harden. They harden. And we become increasingly confident and entrenched in these assumptions. That's when they become presumptions. They become truth that we'll live or die by, but they're based upon what? What we assume the Bible teaches. But we don't actually know. We don't actually know. On the other hand, there are times that these assumptions that we based our life upon, based our understanding of Christ upon, based upon things that we've heard the people have said, and then they lessen. Someone else says something. Someone knocks your door. Someone introduces literature to you. Someone takes you somewhere and you hear something different. And these assumptions, they then weaken and you begin to doubt them. And they move more into the realm of hope than reality. Now, expressions such as, God is not like that. Or, surely God would not do that. Or, God can't possibly, or God wouldn't, or God shouldn't, or, you know, the Lord spoke to me. All of these expressions demonstrate that you're basing your experience, your relationship, and your understanding of Christ upon one of these three words. Either an assumption, which has become a presumption. That means you're absolutely certain about it, so you think. Or you're not quite just so certain. Now we want in our studies to try and remove these three words from the context of what we know and believe and base our Christian life upon. So that we're not making assumptions. We actually are learning what scripture says for ourselves. <coughs> we're not presuming. And we're not just supposing. But we're absolutely certain. So with that in mind, we want to come to the subject of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to ask this question, is Jesus God? Now this is a very pertinent question to ask because the most aggressive and strengthening, continually strengthening attack upon the deity of Christ, upon the fact that Jesus is God, comes from Islam. Make no mistake about it. Now, that is followed by the Jehovah's Witnesses. But Islam in particular has changed tack in our society and is now attacking Christianity on this issue from the pages of the Bible. So they are taking what the Bible says and using what the Bible says to attack this issue, to attack this truth that Jesus is God. When you look up, as I do, websites, there is a website called the Online Islamic Guide to Jesus. Now, I wouldn't suggest a great study of it, but I was interested to look at it. And on that Online Islamic Guide to Jesus, that takes verses from the Bible and seeks to demonstrate from Scripture that Jesus is not God. That's the approach. Now, if you make assumptions about Scripture, how are you going to deal with this? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, authors of the first three Gospels, believed that Jesus was not God. That's the first statement in their kind of doctrine. 
And you say, well, where did they get that from? Well, they quote you Mark 10, verse 18, and Matthew 19, verse 17. And then the next thing is that they believed that he was the son of God in the sense of a righteous person, the character of God. Many others, too, are similarly called sons of God. They go on to say in Matthew 23, verses 1 to 9. That's right. And then they go on to examine Paul's writings that Paul believed to be the author of some 13 or 14 letters in the Bible also believed that Jesus is not God. And they then quote Colossians 1, 15, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, and so on. Then they go into the book of Hebrews, they go into the letters of John, they go into Revelation, <coughs> and they go through systematically Scripture, plucking verses out of context, I may say, but plucking verses out and showing, according to their teaching, that Jesus is not God, using the verses of the Bible to do so. Now, that is where Satan is at his most subtle and destructive in relation to false teaching. It's not the blatant um, humanism that's most effective. It is the subtle taking of Scripture to Christians and the abuse and manipulation of Scripture and the taking out of context and turning Scripture subtly. I mean, after all, that's what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. And he doubted the word of God. He manipulated the word of God. And he brought about that great fall. And that's what he sought to do when uh, the Lord was in the wilderness. You remember that Satan again takes the word of God. And he seeks to manipulate it, to twist it. And he comes at God, Christ, and God's people on the basis of Scripture. That's how Satan comes at them. Because the most subtle and destructive teaching is that which is closest to the truth. So let's ask the question again. For this is relevant. Does the Bible teach that Jesus is God? Can we be certain of that? Or do we assume? Have we presumed that the Bible, without ever looking into it, have we presumed that the Bible must say it somewhere? I mean, surely, we all believe, surely as Christians, that Jesus is God. Uh, and surely somewhere in the Bible there'll be a verse somewhere or other, or, or a few verses that we could turn to, uh, and that'll be the proof text for it. Is that the case? If you were talking to people who disagreed with you, they would come out with expressions such as, there is no place in the Bible that says explicitly that Jesus is God. Now, we want to look into this, and I've got seven points tonight. Now, I never have seven points, but I've got seven points tonight, and you'll be glad that these are not long points. But there are seven reasons from the Bible that Jesus is God. Okay? Seven simple reasons. Now, we're going to look at these. I'm not going to develop them all extensively, but these are seven, and there are more, but these are the seven that I want to bring to you that is the overwhelming, conclusive testimony of the Word of God that Jesus Christ is God. Now, this is so fundamental to our faith because if he is not God, the whole of Scripture falls. The incarnation falls. His suitability... And his ability to redeem us from our sin falls. Our salvation falls. The whole thing is just a religion like any other. The fact that he is God is absolutely fundamental. 
Now you say, well, where's the practical impact? You see, this is what everything else this weekend is going to be built upon. When we come to think about the immutability, the unchanging character of Christ, it must be built upon this truth. When we think about the impeccability of Christ, the fact that he cannot sin, that is intrinsically linked to his deity. You cannot separate the two. When we think about the empathy of the Lord Jesus as opposed to his sympathy, and we'll see the distinction, we're going to see that his deity is crucial to that as well. So you cannot just say this is an isolated subject that's got no relevance. It's a theoretical thing. It doesn't make any difference. It makes every difference. It's the foundation stone. One of the foundation stones of our faith. That our saviour is God. He is God. Now let's look into scripture to see if we can find these seven reasons. I'll give the seven, in case it's not get finished, I'll give the seven to you. You can note them down if you will, and we'll work our way down through them. Number one, which is the most obvious, is that the plain Greek word for God is used of the Lord Jesus in the Bible, the word theos. We're going to look into that in a moment. Number two, Christ has the unique attributes of God. Number three, the Old Testament names of God belong to Christ in the New Testament. Number four, the Old Testament prophecies confirmed that the coming Messiah would be God, would be divine. Number five, Christ himself taught that he was God. Number six, the apostles taught that he was God. And number seven, Christ accepted worship as God. Okay, let's get into this then. So that the Bible uses the plain word for God of the Lord Jesus. Now, there are different words for God in the Bible. If you've got a Bible with the names of God at the front of it, it's quite helpful. You can learn them and you can see them. There are different words for God in the Bible. For example, in the Old Testament, one of the main words is the word Elohim. Now, that is the plural form of the word El, meaning strong one in Hebrew. And it's used especially of God's sovereignty, of his creative work, of his mighty work on behalf of Israel. Now, there are compounds of the word El, for example, and these are the ones that you can see in a Bible uh, leaf or, or you can look up online. And it's important to learn the names of God because God has revealed his character to us through his names. And the compounds of El, such as El Elyon, the Most High God, El Shaddai, God Almighty, El Olam, the Everlasting God. And these all are names of God that reveal his character, who he is. To us, he's the almighty God. He's the everlasting God. He is the God of peace, the God of righteousness. He is the God who provides and so on. El, Elohim, and the compounds of El, one of the words for God and compounds of that word in the Old Testament. Also in the Old Testament, there is the word Yahweh. And that comes from a verb which means to exist. It stresses God as the independent, the self-existent God, 
the God of revelation, the God of redemption, the God of covenant. He is the self-existent God. Now, just like El, there are compounds of Yahweh, so there is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. The self-existent Lord will provide for those who are dependent upon him. And you've got Jehovah, Yahweh, and you've got El, and you've got compounds of these words. You've also got the word Adonai. Now, like Elohim, this is a plural word from the root of majesty, really, the singular form meaning master or owner, and stresses man's relationship to God. God is the master, God is the provider, God is the one with all authority, and we are subject to him, Adonai. Now, there are many more, but that's just an example, three of the main ones of the Old Testament. When you come to the New Testament, there is one kind of generic Greek word for God, theos, from which we get theology, the study of God, uh, theocracy, the rule of God. So you've got this word theos, which is the primary generic name for God in the New Testament. You've also got the word Kurios, which is the word Lord, and that stresses authority and supremacy and is probably the equivalent to Jehovah or Yahweh from the Old Testament. Now, when you come to the New Testament, you discover this, despite what folk will say, or assume, or presume, or suppose. The Bible does use that word theos of the Lord Jesus. For example, here are three examples. Just note them. John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with theos. The word was with God. And the word was God. You say, well, who's the word? You read down John chapter 1, you'll get to verse 14, when it tells us that that word was manifest in flesh. And it speaks about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. So the word was with God, and the word was God. It's a blatant, simple declaration that the word is theos, the word is Christ, Christ is God. Romans 9 verse 5, speaking of Israel, whose are the fathers and of whom is concerning the flesh, Christ came. So that's Jesus Christ, who is over all God, blessed forever. Amen. That's the word theos. So that the one who came out of Israel, the Christ, the prophesied one is God. It, says it, it just says it explicitly. Blessed forever. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. So the first point is this, and it's a simple point. There are occasions in the Bible, where the word for God is used of the Lord Jesus. That's the first point. Now, the second point is this, that, just this, that the Old Testament titles of God belong to Christ. For example, now I'm going to get you to turn up to some scriptures with me here. So, let's turn to Isaiah. I 
think you all know David and I were away on a father-son bonding trip to the other side of the world. I have photos that I will show tomorrow night, maybe. Uh, that will be very embarrassing for David. And uh, when he will know this, but when I was speaking over in Fiji to keep a kind of interest going uh, as we were going through some stuff that was quite hard to understand, then I did a sword drill. It's been a long time. And uh, I did a sword drill, which was... So I think we'll do the same tonight. And we had... Uh, Side against side. Yeah, let's do that. Okay, now if you've never done a sword drill, you've never lived, okay? You've not been brought up through old-fashioned Sunday school time. Sword drills are, you've got to get, electronic doesn't work, I'm sorry. It's old, it's old school. You need to have a Bible in your hand and you need to get your Bible under uh, your oxter, as we say. And you can't cheat, you're not allowed to put your fingers in it and you're not allowed to mark it. And you've got to wait until I say go, okay? Right, so, let me see your Bibles and your oxters. We're going to do this. And yeah, an oxter for you Northern Irish folk is your... Come well, on, Kenny. It's not like that's it. Okay, so, this side. Okay, let's see a bit of competitive spirit here. Jacqueline Foster, you're very competitive. Oh, you're out of the game. Okay, so this side, uh, not this side, just this side, would you turn please to Isaiah, and the first person to get it, just this side, just this side, first person to get it, stand up please. I haven't given you it yet. Anna, what did they teach you in Whitburn? So Isaiah chapter 44, and you've got to wait, verse number Six, huh? Go. Stand up. Okay, Ewan, you've got it. Read it out for us. No. I, uh, <laughs> have a seat, please. <laughs> Anna? Um, keep going. Um, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Thank you. Have a seat. Okay. So over to this side. And I'm just going to check I've got the reference right. I embarrass myself. Which is possible. You've got to, by the way, you've got to be listening for the common expression. Isaiah, again, please, this side. Chapter... 41, verse number 4. Go. Okay. Let's see it. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, last one, and this is, could we get a male, please, who can do this? <laughs> okay, 
Well, that's typical Gurek, isn't it? That's typical Gurek. Old school. Okay. You're right, though. You are correct. So, Isaiah chapter 48, verse number... Hold on. We need to do this draw swords thing. Verse number... Oh, forget the draw sword. Verse number... I forgot the verse. 12, go. Oh. Kenny, sit down, you are cheating. Go on, keep going, keep going. Dan, yes. Yes, please. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my call. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Okay, thank you. Well, the key expression in these three scriptures is a title of the Lord in the Old Testament, which is, I am the first and the last. But he doesn't just make that claim in the Old Testament. What's interesting to me is this, that the first verse that we read said, Thus saith the Lord, that is Jehovah, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord, that's Jehovah as well. I am the first and I am the last. Now listen to this. And beside me there is no God. Now just hold that thought in your mind. The God, the Jehovah of the the Old Testament says, apart from me, there's no God. I am the first and the last. There's no one else. Right. Go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 11. We're not going to do this all night, don't worry. Come on, Gordon. Let's hear it. Turn around. Can you believe that he was shy? <laughs> he is now. Revelation chapter 1, verse 11. Spare you having to say the seven churches' name, thanks very much. Okay, so the person who writes this takes the Old Testament title that Jehovah says is mine, and Jehovah says there's no other God apart from me. So the writer of this, the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, who appears to John in chapter 1 of Revelation, appears and says, I am the first and the last. So the first and the last is a title of the Jehovah of the Old Testament and it's a title of the speaker of this person in the New Testament. Who is this person? Well, go over and I'll just read this, I think. If you go over to verse number 17, you'll find as this description of the one who speaks unfolds, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. So it's repeated. And then chapter 2, verse number 8, Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last. Go over to chapter 22, verse number 13. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Conclusively, excuse me, conclusively, (laughs) 
the one who says, I am Jehovah in the Old Testament, is the one who is Jesus in the New Testament, raised from the dead, who says, I am the first and the last. The one who says, I am the first and the last in the Old Testament, is exactly the same one who says in the New Testament, I am the first and the last. The Jehovah of the Old Testament is the Jesus of the New. The Jehovah of the Old Testament is God. He says, there's no other God apart from me. I'm the only God. The Jesus of the New Testament says, I'm Jehovah. I'm God. I'm the first and the last. So scripture, and that's just one title, presents that unity between these titles of Old and New Testament to show that the Jesus of the New Testament is the Jehovah of the Old and is God. Now, we'll do one more. Okay, go to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. And we're breaking into a narrative where Moses is at the burning bush. And as he's there, he's in conversation with God. Verse 13, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Now that title of God in the Old Testament, the theologians call it the aseity of God. It is the presence of God. He has he is not increasing, he is not becoming, he is not changing, he is. He always is. He's never any different from what he always is. I am, not I have become, not I am becoming. Now that's true of all of us. We are what we have become. And we'll never be the same as we are in this moment of time. As I let a few moments pass, we've now changed. We're a few moments older, but we've changed. God never changes. And the philosophers said that you can never put your foot into the same river twice. And that's true. You go out there to that river and knock and foil, and you cannot put your foot into the same river twice because the river's always moving. And so as the river moves, you put your foot into a different river. May have the same name, but it's a different river, it's different water. And also, the environment in that river has changed. Imperceptibly, perhaps, but it changes. Now, that's the same with all humanity. We use an expression, human beings. That's an incorrect expression. The philosophers would tell you this. There is only one being, and that is God. The rest of us are becomings. Now, it's not very a human becoming, isn't it? A kind of good way to describe anyone, but it's true because we're all becoming something, but God is not. God is a being, and he's the only being within his created universe and beyond it, obviously. So that he is the I am, and that's what I am means. And when you think about that title, it's exclusively a title of God. It cannot be a title of anything other than God. He is the only one who can bear that name. Now go over to John chapter 8. Now 
John chapter 8, verse 58. The Lord Jesus is in debate with his uh, Jewish opponents, those who hated him. And look at verse number 56. As part of his debate with them, he said to them, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, They are not yet fifty years old. And hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, here it is, I am. And you say, Well, no. He's just saying, Before Abraham was alive, I existed. Well, look at verse 59. Then took the up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. The Jews understood this, that he was claiming deity, and you could go elsewhere in the Gospels to see an explicit statement of this. He was claiming deity by saying, I am, and they took up stones to kill him. They understood what he was saying. That was an exclusive title of God, and the Lord Jesus used it of himself, the I am. You could, I won't do this because time won't allow, titles such as light, Isaiah 60 says this, Jehovah will be to you an everlasting light. Isaiah 49 verse 6, I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles. Light, I am the light of the world. Light is a title of God in the Old Testament. It's a title of Christ in the New Testament. Redeemer is a title of God in the Old Testament. It's a title of Christ in the New. Likewise, shepherd, rock, saviour, there are many. In fact, the titles of God go through them all. They all belong to Christ in the New Testament. And if you spend the time, you'll discover the links. And they're linked for a purpose. To link the Christ of the New Testament, the Jesus of the New Testament, to the God of the Old Testament. And show there's complete harmony between the two of them. Third point. Christ has the unique attributes of God. So not only the Old Testament titles, but also attributes. Now, there are unique attributes. You know, when we speak about being godly, we speak about ourselves being like God. But you see, there are only so many ways that we can be like God. There are certain things about God that we cannot be like. These are attributes which cannot be communicated to us. Now, there are many attributes of God which are communicable and can be passed to us and we ought to have them and these ought to grow and develop. Things like righteousness, truth, love, grace and so on. But there are certain things about God that he cannot communicate to us because they belong uniquely to himself. Now, I think there are seven at least. Number one, he is eternal. I'll just give you the quotation. I won't quote you them but if you're taking notes, God is eternal. Psalm 90, verses 1 to 2. Secondly, he is omnipresent. That means he is everywhere at once. Not just within his creation, but everywhere. Jeremiah 23, verses 23 to 24. He says, Do, I, do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord. Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him? Do not I fill heaven and earth? 
Thirdly, he is omniscient. Now spell that one if you can. He is omniscient, which just means he knows everything. He knows everything. Now many of us would like to have that attribute communicated to us. We don't have it. Did you manage, Elaine? Thank you. And omniscient means to know everything. Psalm 139 verse 1 to 4 is one of the best statements of the omniscience of God. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting, mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compass my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with my ways. There is not a word in my tongue. But lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. He knows absolutely everything. Fourthly, he is omnipotent, which means he is all power and there is no limit upon his power. His power is without limit. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Fifthly, he is immutable, which means, we'll see tomorrow, he does not change. We have seen the aseity of God in some sense, and the immutability of God is slightly different, but it conveys this concept of the unchangeableness of God. Malachi 3, verse 6. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Sixthly, he is creator which means that he is the only being who can create from nothing. From nothing. Every other act of creation that is done by man is not an act of creation from nothing. We take what God has provided in his creation and we make things and we change things. And we adapt things and we merge things. But we do not create as he created. Uh, Genesis 1.1. Lastly, number seven, he is judge. He is judge. Psalm 50 verse 6 says this, And the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself. Himself alone. Now, if you take these seven unique attributes of God, and I won't weary you with this, but this is a study, mark the study. You can see that Christ explicitly in the New Testament has each of these attributes. Revelation 1 verse 18, in relation to his eternality, in relation to his omnipresence, and don't ask me to explain this, but, you know, John chapter 3, verse 13, the Lord Jesus said this, and this is like a tongue twister. He said, No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. So he said, I came down. No man has gone up, but I came down. And he said, Even though I've come down, I'm still up there. That's what he was saying. Even though I'm here, I'm still there. I don't understand that. I can't explain that. But can you explain a verse that the Lord Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. And I used to sit in Hope on Bridge Weir and wonder at that because I couldn't see him. And people said it with such confidence. He's here. Where is he? He has a body. There's nobody here. What does that actually mean? Well, you see, one of the titles of the Holy Spirit is Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit of Christ is present. Christ is present. And as a result, he is omnipresent. 
He is omniscient. He knows everything. John 2 verse 25. He needed not that any man testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And so he could go on. His omnipotence, Isaiah 9 verse 6. His immutability, Hebrews 1 verses 10 to 11. His creative work, John 1 verse 10. He is the judge. And we see that Acts 10 38 verse 42. Acts 17 verse 31. And you'll get this in the app. Every attribute of the Godhead is ascribed to him. And it's summed up in Colossians 2 verse 9, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now this may seem, I understand this, and it's the most technical of the sessions that we're doing, but when you think about this, this is absolutely vital. The Bible is overwhelmingly stating and declaring to us that the Lord Jesus is God. And although it's under attack, we can see that his... His name is associated with the word God, Theos. We don't need to do linguistic gymnastics to get there. We can see that when you begin to get into the theology of the Bible, that the Old Testament titles are owned by Christ in the New Testament. That the unique attributes of God declared to be uniquely divine in the Old Testament are seen in him. In the New Testament. And then the next point, and I won't spend a lot of time on this at all. The Old Testament prophecies affirming that the coming Messiah, affirming the coming Messiah, stated that the coming Messiah would be God. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which being by interpretation is God with us. Isaiah 9, verse 6. Very fire out references. Just take down when you can. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 to 6. The Lord, our righteousness... Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, Israel shall dwell safely. This is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord, Jehovah, our righteousness. The coming Messiah bears a divine title. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting, from the days of eternity. So that the coming Messiah is eternal. The coming Messiah bears divine title. Go to Psalm 45, verse 1. You have it littered right through that psalm. And so you have that point in these scriptures, and it's a simple one, that the Old Testament prophecies spoke of a coming Messiah, but a coming Messiah that would be God. The Jews missed it. The Jews missed it. Because how could God be born in a manger? (coughs) Laid in a manger. How could God be a carpenter? How could God live in Nazareth? How could God hang up on a cross? To the Jews, stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness notice as well very quickly now the lord jesus himself and i've touched on this already the lord jesus explicitly to the jewish audience declared himself to be god 
In John 5, I've been mentioning this, verses 16 to 18, it says this, Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus, sought to slay him, because he did things on the Sabbath day. Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. That sounds pretty innocuous. Not to a Jew. Well, they got it. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. They got it. He was declaring himself to be divine. And so they sought to kill him, not just because he broke the Sabbath, but also, John 10, verse 33, 30 to 33, for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because that thou being a man makest thyself God. So in his teaching and in his miracles, he was declaring himself to be divine. Did Jesus teach he was God? Yes, he did. Did his audience understand the teaching? Yes, they did. Did they respond to it? Yes, they did, with violence. And they rejected his claims, but he made the claims. Now we're getting there. Not only did the Lord Jesus teach he was God, but the apostles obviously teach he is God. Philippians 2 verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. That word form means essential essence. Who in his very essence is divine. You don't get a more clear statement than that. And he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Why? Because he is God. And that goes on. Colossians 2 verse 8. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 1 Timothy 3 verse 16. Without controversy great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in flesh. Justified in the spirit. Seen of angels. Preached unto the Gentiles. Believed on in the world. Received up into glory. Hebrews 1 verse 8. As it said. Last point. So we're learning these seven points. Let me just summarize them for you. Number one, the word theos is used of Christ, plain word in Greek for God. Number two, Christ is the unique attributes of God. I mentioned seven. Also, the Old Testament names of God belong to Christ. We have seen that the Old Testament prophecies prophesied a coming Messiah who would be divine, who would be God. Christ himself in his teaching taught he was God. The apostles and the epistles teach that he is God. And the Lord Jesus accepted worship as God. Now, you've got to understand this in the Bible. Men and angels did not allow themselves to be worshipped as God. And those that did were punished severely by God. So that for example, in Acts chapter 10, verse 25 to 26, you have this connection between Peter and Cornelius. And Peter comes in, Cornelius meets him, and it says this, he fell down at his feet and he worshipped him. This is what Peter said. Peter took him up saying, stand up, I myself also am a man. Don't do that. That's wholly inappropriate. Don't bow down and worship me. I'm just a man. Now, you contrast, and there are many examples of that, you contrast the Lord Jesus from his birth until his ascension. It was characterised by worship, albeit by a few, but consistent worship of him. 
as God. You remember when they came, Matthew 2, verse 10 to 11, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. When they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped them. It doesn't say them. They worshipped her. It doesn't say her. It says they worshipped him. Him. So that as a small child, a baby, then he received, and scripture is careful to point it out, he received appropriately worship. Right through his life, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 2, I noted down, behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. He accepted it, no rebuke. He received it. Again, Matthew 9, verse 18, while Jesus was speaking, there came a certain ruler worshipping him, saying, My daughter is even now dead. Come lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. He received it. Continually. Why? It was wholly appropriate. It was an acknowledgement that he is God. And when Mary is worshipping at his feet, and she's rebuked for doing so, he then rebukes them and says, let her alone. Let her be. She's doing something that's right and appropriate. And he received worship. And scripture places that on record and in contrast to that shows that when men exalted themselves, whether it be a Herod or a Nebuchadnezzar, and vaunted themselves before men, and were worshipping or seeking to be worshipped, God brought them very low. Angels would not allow men to worship them. Men who knew God would not accept worship. But the one person in the page of Scripture, the one man who lived here, in the whole Bible, for whom it was appropriate to receive worship, is the Lord Jesus. And he is therefore seen as presenting himself and being presented by Scripture as being the one to whom worship is due. You say, well, maybe he's just the best man that ever lived and worshipped as such. No, the Scripture teaches that we should what, worship, honour, serve God and God alone. You just need to go to the Ten Commandments to see that. No other gods before him. Do not worship anything. Do not worship anyone apart from God. So these are seven reasons why I believe the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. Now, when we come together tomorrow, we're going to see that that bedrock, that biblical bedrock really is the bedrock upon which these two fundamental and important and practical issues are built upon. The immutability of Christ and the immutability of Christ in relation to your money. That's Hebrews 13. And we're going to see why the immutability of Christ must affect your wallet. Because that's the context in which it's taught. And we'll see why the writer to the Hebrew should bring out the immutability of Christ when he's speaking about finance. 
And then when we come to the impeccability of Christ, we are going to see that that has a very should have a very dramatic effect upon our moral purity. <coughs> our moral purity. And when we come to the empathy of Christ, we will see that the Lord Jesus is uniquely placed to help us in the daily struggles of life. So that is going to be, but that's all built upon this. You don't get this, you can't build upon it. So if you're tested tomorrow by me or someone else, then hopefully you will have seven reasons from the Bible, maybe more. Maybe you can find another seven. Maybe there are another seven. Seven reasons that I could find anyway. Why the Bible teaches that Jesus is God and the Jehovah's Witnesses who say he is a God are wrong. And the Muslims who say that Jesus was only a prophet are wrong. And the Bible declares plainly that Jesus is God. It's a marvel, isn't it? To think the one that we own as our saviour, who is here, is none other than God himself. God manifest in flesh. Now let's pray and bring the session to an end.